Okay, um, uh, just mention a couple things real quick. I remember, uh, remember, anyone remember George Burns, the comedian, the guy who was still working when he was 100 years old? Cigar. Cigar, yeah, married to Gracie Allen. And, yeah, and he, like the last 20, 30 years of his, of his routine, you know, he started his routine by saying, it's really good to be here at my age, it's really good to be anywhere. And I kind of got my own version of that tonight. I almost got hit by lightning earlier this week. And I mean, it hit like from me to the corner of the sanctuary there. And it blew, I mean, blinding light, exploding, loudest thing I've ever heard. I actually thought, you know, for the first second or two, I had been hit. Um, And then I realized I wasn't. And I'm standing there. I was up on this big ridge line. And once I kind of pulled it together and realized, my God, I'm alive. Thank you, Lord. You know, I didn't know you, I didn't know lightning could hit that close and not take out everything around it. But um, so then I'm standing there and it's like, well, Lord, that was insane. And by the way, I started, I'd kind of gotten up there and I heard these storms around me and I could see some stuff in the distance, but I had blue skies, but I know how weather works. You know, and lightning can go dozens of miles. And so I pulled out my little radar wrap and yeah, nothing's, nothing's within 10, 12 miles. I'm pretty good up here, you know. But I also was forgetting that Doppler radar is about seven, eight minutes behind actual uh, reporting, real time. So apparently something had scooted right along, right over me. But anyway, here's the deal. That was interesting enough. But then once I realized I'm okay, it's like, well, God, I'd kind of like to stay here and do what I came here for. And, and he's like, no, you need to go and you need to go now. And I'm like, well, it's still, Lord, it's not that bad out. Um, you know, it's kind of nice. And he's like, get going. And I was about a half mile up from this trail. So I started going down this trail toward my vehicle. And he's like, you got to go faster. So now I'm kind of like jogging down the trail. And he's kind of prompting me along. I get about halfway to my vehicle and, and just, my vehicle, and like, <laughs> All of a sudden, just things start going, and lightning is striking here, and lightning is striking there, and, and I'm starting to really move. And, and he's going, you can go faster. And I got about 100 yards from my vehicle, and just literally, just all hell broke loose. And it just poured, and lightning flashed, and I just sat in my vehicle for the next 40 minutes riding it out. But lesson of the story, you know, God says, first off, we've got to trust him for our divine protection because I don't know of any natural fortifications against a direct lightning strike um, other than, you know, having some kind of lightning rod system or something. But the other thing is if the Lord says, tell you, you know, do something, if he says run, run. <laughs> if he says go, go, because he knows what he's talking about. So little lesson there. Um, another thing real quick, we'll just jump into things. Um, how are we going to get through this, Lord? Um, I'm going to just do it anyway. Okay. What I'd like to touch on tonight, and I don't know how far we'll get, but it just strikes me to the core of my being as a testimony to how God will meet us anywhere we are in life. Um, he will go into the, the darkest of pits to 
to save the, the lost sheep. He, he never gives up on anyone regardless of their circumstance, their age, their the behaviors they've engaged in, how you know, clueless they were, whether they even didn't believe in him, whether at one point in their life they mocked him. You know, I was saved as a saved as a as a young kid, seven, eight years old, and then black backslid in my teens and came back into the relationship with God in my early thirties. There's actually a whole lot to that story about his faithfulness and drawing me back. But anyway, I ended up at a church in a suburb of Minneapolis, a big faith church, kind of mega church. And I was so like clueless about the things of God at that point in my life that, um, wow, it just, it's actually a little overwhelming. Just Sorry, just give me a moment. I would go there on a Wednesday night, and I would sit in the back of this large sanctuary. There's usually about two, 300 people there on a, on a Wednesday night. And I didn't understand anything, usually the pastor's wife taught, and I didn't understand a thing she was teaching. They couldn't understand it. But it still somehow resonated with me. And so I'd, I'd come late, I'd sit in the back, I'd listen to her teach, and then I'd leave as soon as she was done. You know, I, I was out of there. Always last to arrive, first to go. And, and I'll tell you how little I knew about God a couple times I got there when the worship was still going on. And I would read the lyrics on, on the um, screens, and I'd see people with their hands in the air just like really engaged in this worship. And it bewildered me, and it freaked me out, and it disturbed me. Because I wanted to, I was at that point really looking for a relationship with God on some level, but who is this God that needs to be worshipped? Like, what's wrong with him? Is he a narcissist? Um, is he, like, wildly insecure? Is this the way he judges people, if they worship him or not? And if I don't worship him, am I going to hell? I mean, I was really turned off and freaked out by worship. It just seemed bizarre to me. So if I got to church and worship was still going, I'd sit in the lobby. I wanted to hear the word, but the rest of it just creeped me out. And, and forget going to, like on a Sunday morning, you know, I was like, man, I will never go on a Sunday morning. That's just like insane. But I, I do want to kind of hear what is going on because it's intriguing. I did this for, month, for a number of months in one service. Um, the, the, the pastor's wife, pastor, I guess she's a pastor, she said, okay, now we're just going to sit here for a half hour in the presence of the Lord. I'm like, well, this is really weird, but I, I can sit here, whatever. And I was you know, in the back, on the aisle, so I can make my quick getaway. Anyway, the Spirit of God falls on me, and I didn't understand what was going on. All of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I'm experiencing perfect peace and perfect love, and it felt kind of like low-grade electricity going through me. And to tell you how cynical I was at that point in my life, I immediately started looking for ducting, thinking they were pumping nitrous through the, the ventilation system. 
They had to be gassing us. This had to be like chemically induced. And I, be, I mean, I, I believed that. But I couldn't, I mean, I just could, I couldn't stop. I just, hey, whether they're drugging us or not, this feels great. <laughs> and then I remember Lynn, she gets back up to the platform and she says, now, if you don't understand what's going on here, what you're experiencing is the Spirit of God. And this is the Father loving on you. And I just thought, how does she know what I'm experiencing? I mean, it was just weird. And she said, now, we're going to end the service formally, but if you want to stay and just continue to soak, do so. And if you need to leave, you need to get your kids or something, please go quietly. And so I sat there like another 45 minutes. I think I sat there till they shut the thing down. Think about where I was. That was about 1995 compared to where I am now in the Lord and how far I've come and his willingness to walk with me every day, every week, every month, every year to bring me to a place of revelation and understanding in him that is simply on a daily basis expanding beyond anything I could have ever hoped or dreamed. It's just, it's astonishing to me. And it speaks to the love, it speaks to the loyalty, and it speaks to the faithfulness of God. And, and this is why it's one of the things that, that continues to influence me to, to trust him in the way I press in to what he has for the rest of my natural life. So, yeah, just, uh, I'm grateful for that. Um, last week, if you remember, if you were here, we hit on a number of things, including church history. And I was probably a bit harsh in my uh, evaluation of church history in terms of it being able to, over the course of the last 2,000 years, um, bring forth what I consider to be the true gospel, although there is a part of me that thinks I probably wasn't nearly harsh enough. Um, That said, I do want to bring some clarification because just like as the Lord told Elijah on the mount after he had slain the the, the false priests of Baal, and then was threatened by Jezebel and went hiding on the mountaintop. If you remember, he told the Lord, I, I'm alone, God, in the whole nation. There's no one left but me. And, and the Lord said to him, you know, hey, buddy, I've reserved 7,000 people in the land who have not bowed their knee. You're not alone. And I, I do want to point out that during the last 2,000 years, there has always been a remnant there's always been a remnant. And it really started um, uh, in kind of as an independent thing outside of the actual church structure that existed in the early church. In about 270 AD, a couple of guys, uh, Anthony the Great and Paul of Thesis or Theris, they went out into the Egyptian desert just to engage in contemplative prayer. And they just went out there to meet God. And for and the one guy I forget, 
I think, I think again, his name was, might have been Anthony the Great or something. Very wealthy guy, giving it all away, and just went out and lived like a hermit and started having these tremendous encounters with God. And this is like the Egyptian desert, right? And, and uh, more people started coming out because they started hearing these extraordinary testimonies. And essentially a movement came out of it. They call it the Desert Fathers Movement. But it lasted close to 200 years. At one point, there were 500,000 people living in the Egyptian desert. 500,000. This is where monastic Christianity was birthed. This is where Christian mysticism was birthed. And then out of that movement, through the centuries, there have been, uh, mostly through monastic orders, there have been uh, not just the, the example of monastic living and the contemplative uh, lives that is, is expressed in, in, the, in the people who engage in it, but then there's been people who somehow have kind of ended up almost a cut above, if you will, in that they've gone so far in that they have exhibited extraordinary supernatural um, uh, events. Teresa of Avila was one. She was a 16th century uh, mystic, and she'd get so lost in God, and there's just multiple uh, confirmations of this, that she would routinely levitate. As a matter of fact, they would assign nuns to her to essentially hold her down during certain services. They'd just grab onto her and hold on her because it was so routine with her. Um, Julian of Norwich, Catherine of Siena. Actually, a lot of the big mystics were women. And, but they, they, essentially, if you read what they wrote, and, and believe me, and a lot of their theology also was a mess, so it's not like they got the theology perfect, because a lot of the theology was atrocious. But, but, boy, did they know how to love on God and let God love them. And they committed their lives to it, and they got lost in it. And it just, it was transformative. It transformed those around them. And of course, this has continued on through the centuries. And now what we're seeing, what I believe is actually a resurgence within the church in this kind of approach to God. Contemplative prayer, meditation, these kinds of things. And, and it's wonderful, and it's powerful. And I think it's something we can offer to all the generations, especially the younger generations, the millennials, the Gen Zs, who, have, who are now just rejecting the church wholesale. Because I believe in that kind of intimate communal living, we have the true gospel. Last week, I, I put kind of a general definition to what I believe the gospel is and what it's about. And if you'll remember, we started in, in, in John 17, 3, uh, in uh, the words of Jesus, again, he stated only once, it's only recorded once in scripture, he said, this is eternal life, this is the meaning of life, he was speaking to the Father at this time, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He said the meaning of life is to know the Father and to know him, 
period, right? Full stop, end of story. And I tied that into John 10, 14 and 15, in which Jesus said, I know my own, that's us, right? I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. In that verse, he's declaring, we have the capacity, and again, this is a mind bender, I get it, but we have the capacity, not just the capacity, he's declared this, he's essentially prophetically spoken it over our lives, right? That we are to know him in the same, with the same knowledge and intimacy and love that exists between the Father and our Lord. You know, this is what Scripture says. I believe this is the existential meaning of life for us both now and for all eternity. And as we learn from 1 John 5.20, we are equipped to do this now. We don't have to wait till the other side of this life to live in, to receive, to believe in this intimate expression of our perfect union with him. John wrote, uh, the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the one true God and this is eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we're already hardwired for this, right? We've already got this capacity. And why do we have this capacity? Because as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Okay? We're in God. God's in us. There's no separation. God is not parceled out to us. We have perfect union. Okay? So, for me, a general definition what I believe would be a good general definition of what I consider to be the, the paramount message, the, the foundation of the gospel would be that God, as essentially uh, John 17, 3. Knowing the Father, knowing, the G, knowing Jesus as they know each other. I really believe, if I just had to pick one verse to define uh, our reason for being, reason for creation, is that. So that's kind of a, a foundational framework, if you will. But you see, there's more structure we can put to that, we can add to that. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, oh, come on, 8 6, Paul wrote, Boy, and this is really an overlooked scripture. He said, um, he said, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things. Now, catch this next part. There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. We exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom 
are all things, and we exist through him. So we exist for the Father, and we exist for the Father through Jesus Christ. Now, a bunch of mature believers, we all understand the, the doctrine, the theology of being in Christ. It's something Paul touched on over 150 times, you know, in Christ, we're by Christ, through Christ, in him, by him, through him, in Jesus, right, on and on. It, it references all the things that we have through our perfect union with Christ. Because remember, Jesus Christ, or Christology, is perfect theology. All things exist through him, in him all things consist, and, and he is the firstborn from the brethren. He is the one that essentially we are created in the image of, especially post the cross going forward, etc., etc. He is our big brother. He is our Lord. But what does that ultimately mean for us? Yes, it means we have his righteousness. We have his sanctification. We have his peace. We have the gifts of the Spirit. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We can experience miracles. The full work of the cross is ours. It's all these amazing things that it means that, that we have because we're in Christ. But like, what's the big takeaway? What's the big takeaway? Well, and again, that, that 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we're told that, that um, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And there's like a little nugget that needs to be examined because how do we exist for the Father? Well, isn't the answer to that found in the question, in the word Father? We exist for the Father. Well, how are we existing for the Father? As his children. And how are we existing as his children? Through Jesus Christ, the one eternal Son. This, if you take John 17.3 and start putting structure to it, this is the structure that comes forth. So let's go back in time a bit. We again touched on this last week. I won't belabor it. I'm trying to keep the ball rolling here. But God is, is eternal, right? He's the only uncreated being that's ever been. Okay? And we know that God is love. So a billion, trillion, gazillion years ago to the gazillionth power, who was God? God was love, right? And he was the trinity. And because he's love, um, there is this perfect relationship that's always existed between the Father and Jesus in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Bottom line, for me personally, above all else, and of course, the nature and, the, and character of God is infinite. I get that. He is spirit. He's light. He's a consuming fire. Scripture offers dozens and dozens of redemptive and revelatory names of God. But who has he always been? Before he was creator, before he was judge, before he was all these things, he was father. 
And Jesus was Son in the communion of the Holy Spirit. The Trinity has always been, for all time, perfect family. Who is God to me? God is family. You know, I, yes, God is love, but greater definition to that for me is God is family. Self-sustaining, perfect family. Again, he never needed to create us to continue to be perfect love, perfect family, other-giving, other-centered, perfectly relational. The only perfect relationship that's ever existed in the cosmos is the one that continues to exist. And it will always be a perfect relationship. But in the overflow of that love, the Father and Jesus said, let's create man in our image. And how are we going to create man in our image? As children, we, we are going to adopt them into our family. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 that he chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as children by Jesus Christ to himself. It's kind of a mouthful, but you can track with it, right? Before the foundation of the world, he said, hey, just as Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in him. He, under, he saw us. He envisioned us. He loved us. Right? The classic Jeremiah 1-something. Um, before he formed us, um, he knew us. Before we were born, he sanctified us. God wanted to expand his family. He wanted more children to love on. So in Christ, we are created for the Father. Now, let's take this even further. How are we relational with the Father? We know it's through union. I mean, we get the basic structure. We're in Christ. The Father's in us. You know, the Holy Spirit's in us. We're in this perfectly melded union. But... Like, how perfect is that union? And we can say, well, it's perfect. Yes, it is perfect. But what are we drawing from that? What are we drawing from that? And, and this is, what I mean by, is this. It's very understandable to want to see ourselves in union with God, receive it, accept it, but see our relationship with the Father, you know, with Jesus, as still um, marked or not separated, but, but um, distinctive uh, from the relationship they have with each other. Part of that just makes sense. But... Um, but I want you to consider this. Our relationship with the Father is actually found 
in the relationship, now just stay with me here, found within the relationship that has always existed within Christ between the Father and Jesus. And I'm kind of making a mess. I'll try and clean it up. So the Father and Jesus have always lived in perfect relationship, right? God, is the, God the Father is the perfect Father. Jesus is the perfect Son. It's a perfect familial relationship, correct? Because we are in Christ, we are actually brought into that very relationship. So we are not in any way in and of ourselves on our, well, Christ will get you there into the relationship, but now you're essentially on your own just as who you are trying to sort out, you know, a relationship with them in a sense, kind of almost on your own. Being in Christ gets you there, but now the Father's going to treat you different than he is Jesus because they've got their own thing going. But it's actually not the case. The life that we live in Christ brings us into relationship. We, when we got saved, it's so common in the church, people say, well, I invited Jesus into my life. I invited God in my heart. Yeah, no, actually, there's a way better way to say that, a more accurate way to say that. He invited us into his life. And the life that we now live, we live in him. We're actually, everything we experience from God is actually found within the parameters that exist between the Father and Jesus. There is no part about our lives in Christ that are found outside of the relationship that is already occurring within, between the Father and the Lord and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Whether we realize it or not, this is our highest truth. This is our greatest reality. And again, I know we're in kind of deep waters here, but we exist existentially and well for all time through the relationship that's existed forever within the Trinity. We are, that's how profoundly in union we are with the Trinity. So when we commune with the Father, when we go to God with a request, when we experience him in some form or fashion, it's all coming from the, the same relational dynamic that's already, that's existed within the Trinity. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was having a really bad day, and I was kind of having some blunt conversations with, uh, with God, and, and I was not holding back, and, and I was forcefully complaining about a couple things where I felt he hadn't come through for me, and he spoke and he said, Paul, he said, I have sustained you your whole life. And he said, there is not one thing you have ever experienced in me that you realized was me or you just were oblivious to that wasn't me fathering you. And that's true for all of us. Every single thing you've ever experienced in God from what may seem as the, the littlest 
to the largest was you ultimately being fathered just the same with the same love, intimacy, connection as exists between the Father and Jesus. This may not be our reality, perceived reality, but it is our truth. It is our truth. Remember how when you're starting out in the Lord and you've got some revelation that you've never had before, or righteousness or something, or he actually you know, might love you or whatever, and it changed you? And now it's just accepted. You haven't even thought about it. Years have gone by and you've grown in so many other things. Just because we don't get this now doesn't mean we can't get it like we got other things years ago. The true gospel, the true gospel is that our relationship as his children created for the Father is going to be our highest truth for all everlasting time. We will always be children. Everything ultimately will be filtered through our childness and him being the father with Jesus, our big brother, enabling it all, and if you want to say, leading by example. Let me ask you this. Do you live father conscious? Like, do you get up in the morning and is your your first thought, father? No, I mean, it wasn't mine. I was telling Larry and Vicki earlier today, I remember in the 90s when I was back at that church starting to come in a relationship with God. I remember asking this guy one time, I was walking down the aisle after service, and I said, okay, I kind of get the Jesus thing. He's relatable, you know, he wore sandals and had long hair and but this father thing, what is up? How do I, is he real? I mean, you know, do I, because my, my growing up, my relationship with my natural father was a disaster. I couldn't even grasp the concept. I was not father conscious. But yet, above all else, and I, I mean, you can, hey, challenge me on this. I hope this is a dialogue that continues within these walls of Joyland until you know, the Lord returns or whatever, but everything is funny. Just in my research, I, I got to share this. Okay, if you go online, if you go online and just Google what did Jesus talk about the most, there's this amazing argument. If you just hit like the first couple pages of Google, what did Jesus talk about the most? There's kind of like this ongoing argument. One camp says he talked about money the most because he referenced money in 11 parables. And, and, and actually, if you look at it, he wasn't in the, in the majority of those parables. He actually, the money was just part of a, a story that was a bigger, there's a bigger story. It was just incidental to the story. And then there's this other camp, and you get a kick out of this considering where Larry took you recently, where it says um, he, talks, he talked about hell more than anything else. Because uh, he referenced hell nine times. And of course, there, that camp is talking about hell in the whole fire and brimstone way. Okay? 
And which again is just, God, you just want to, I don't know what, bang one's head against a wall. But, and I've, I've been looking at this going, well, just, just off the top of my head, I would say he talked about the kingdom, you know? So I did a quick study, you know, way more than those things. And sure enough, Jesus referenced the kingdom, I want to say it's like 96 times. I don't know how that like escapes people who are fixated on hell or money. How, I mean, you know, but now here's, I hope I got these numbers. Oh, here we go. Thank you, God. But let's, let's see what Jesus really emphasized. Do you know how many times Jesus mentioned God? One, and this is in the four Gospels, and I think also included is one, uh, uh, one spot in Acts chapter 1, and then I think twice in the book of Revelation. Jesus mentioned God 137 times. Jesus mentioned the Father 154 times. 154 times he mentioned the Father. He used the phrase, your Father, that is speaking to those around him, which includes us now, right? He used the phrase, your Father, 29 times. The epistles mention God the Father 71 times. Do you think the gospel is a little father-centric? Kind of puts that whole 11 times, which is not really 11, it's like three or four times reference to money, puts it in perspective. Jesus, I think I said this last week, he didn't, yes, he, he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We get it. It's wonderful. He had to be. But he didn't come to die so we would walk around fixated on the fact that we're no longer going to fry in hell. He came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal his relationship with the Father, and he came to let us know that the relationship he's, he had, had with the Father when he walked the earth and that he's always had is ours as well. He is the firstborn among many brethren. He came from the Father, into the world. And as he said, he left the world to return to the Father. And we're going to do the exact same thing. We're all going to the Father. Except here is the beautiful thing. We've already gone to the Father. We don't have to wait. We're already with the Father. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Don't wait to receive what you already have. Man, get up in the morning and go, Good morning, Father.
I mean, are you at a place in your relationship with God where you can, there's no judgment in any of this, and I wasn't certainly in this place for years and years and years. But, well, I'll say it this way. Do we know the difference between the voice of the Father and the voice of Jesus? When God speaks to you, we say, oh, I heard from God. Okay, who was it? Was it the Father who spoke to you? Was it Jesus who spoke to you? I mean, the reality is we barely even know the distinction of the voices. And yet Jesus said, I know, you know, I know my own, my own know me. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. He said, he said, my sheep know my voice. Sorry, I'm a bit jumbled. We can, we can know the distinction in the, between the voices of the Father and Jesus. And I'm not making, this isn't some kind of legal, you know, this isn't some bizarre religious goal we've got to, you know, now perform at. But I'm saying if we're father conscious, we're going to get to a place where we actually really hear his voice clearly. The first time I heard the father say to me, Paul, I love you. I, I, or I said, Paul, I love you, my son. It was so powerful. I was in my bedroom. It was like the middle of weekday in the afternoon. I shot back a couple steps, hit a bedroom wall, slid down the wall, slumped over, and laid there for an hour. And then I got up and walked around the next three days completely gone. And there's a number of reasons for this. Probably it hit me so hard was because I didn't, my relationship with my natural father had been so screwed up. So finally, you know, as a very mature, you know, adult at that point, well along in life, to actually have a father tells me he loves me, it tore me in two. It just, it literally did take me off at the knees. And almost left a hole in my wall. But it was the most precious thing that I'd encountered in God. I mean, I've been transported. I've been, I've experienced the bending of time. I've had angelic intervention. I've seen every miracle of healing almost known to man. I've heard the voice of God a bazillion times. I mean, I've had a pretty good run. But, and those things are all great. And I, they're, hey, they're cool, they're awesome, fun, right? But, man, let me tell you something. Hearing the Father say, I love you? Getting up in the morning and just knowing. See, and now knowing how deep I am within the Trinity in terms of union. When I'm in need, when I'm hurting, and I, I, just draw, and I just draw on who I am in Christ, and I draw, like, say I'm hurting. I just yield to that love between the Father and Jesus, that perfect, ongoing life, relational life within them, to draw my healing. I don't have to create my own comfort. I don't have to create anything. I don't have to create my own healing. I don't have to create my own... Provision. I don't have to create my own identity. I don't have to create anything. I just draw on that which has already existed in Christ, in the perfect Son. There's so much more we could talk, you know, to. 
but I just, I want to, oh boy. Um, okay, real quick. Um, at the heart of all of this, first off is actually understanding the theology, which we've touched on a bit tonight. But the other thing, and this is the main thing, it's, it's time spent with him. And, you know, for me personally, I started a few years ago just getting before God with no agenda, no demands. I don't care, like, if my entire life was just on fire. It's like, God, I'm going to at least take a few hours here, and whatever you want to talk about, I'm going to listen. And that's how it started for me. And I've already, and I've, at that point, I've already had an extremely active prayer life, scripture all the time, yada, yada. I just started spending time with God with no agenda. I'm just going to let you know. And sure enough, after a while, you know, he starts to talk and he starts to share things and you start to commune. And the time starts to go by. And it's not what I want to talk about. It's what he wants to talk about. It's what he wants to minister. And I got to tell you, there's nothing better than that. That is the buzz of buzzes. You know, I'd do it on my deck or out in the woods, and I'd be, I can't tell you how many times I've like come off the mountain, and I'll drive into town, and I am kidding you not, I'm like, where am I? And I look at the, it's like the world is just bizarre and foreign. It's like, this is trippy. I'll give, I'm going to quote a couple of mystics, one modern day, Evelyn Underhill. Because I want to, and I'll just leave you with this. Um, this is a woman who really went after it. So just two quotes. Because I want to encourage you to lean into this, to lay hold of this. Lay hold of your perfect sonship. Lay hold of your perfect daughterhood. It's already perfect in him. Evelyn Underhill, here we go. We spend, we mostly spend our lives conjugating three verbs. To want, to have, and to do. Forgetting that none of these verbs have any ultimate significance, except so far as they are transcended by and included in the fundamental verb, to be. Just be in him. There's, there's no goals to obtain in contemplative relationship with him, communal relationship there's no markers, there's no start, there's no finish. It's just existing for the sake of existing. I'll give you one more. Um, and this has been my experience, so I wanted to include this one. As your meditation becomes deeper, it will defend you from the perpetual assaults of the outer world. You will hear the busy hum of that world as a distant exterior melody and know yourself to be in some sort of withdrawn and know yourself to be in some sort withdrawn from it. You have set a ring of silence between you and it. And behold, within that silence, you are free. The, the Catholic German theologian Karl Rahner, 20, I think big big-time guy in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, whatever. I might be off. But he, he prophetically saw, I think, the state of the church. And he said, um, 
The Christian of the future will be a, a mystic. Just, and that's a $10 word. It just means what we're talking about. We're all mystics. Everyone here is a mystic. The, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or there will be no Christianity at all. So, I had a lot more to go on. I was going to lead us into a little contemplative prayer thing. I'm 20 minutes over. Thank you for your indulgence. I, does anyone have any questions real quick before uh, Laurel and Vicky run a spear through me? So can you explain contemplative prayer in a few words? Well, great question. And I'm going to give you my own personal, because I, I actually... From what I've been doing for the number of years, I don't like actually using the word contemplative. I use it because everyone recognizes it. This is how I define things. And so you can hear, I'm going to just give you my, my definition. And the first two are, are very societally accepted. Medi- meditation and c- contemplation. And meditation, and again, meditation, you know, it goes into Eastern religions, goes Western religions. But for me in Christianity, meditation... Um, it's just essentially getting thoughts of God or oneself in God, picking one's own thoughts, and then spending time just in a quiet place with some practice breathing, yielding to that. And there's certainly benefits to be had from that. Um, contemplative prayer, and this is the big one now, and there, you can get apps for this, um, and there's a lot of new age apps for med- uh, contemplative prayer. It's a big thing out there. But it's where someone essentially takes a scripture, a couple words, something they've gotten from the Lord, and then they quiet themselves and they just rehearse that over and over. And it's something is, is kind of faith Christians too, we've done with scripture ourselves, right? It, it's, it's contemplative. We're, we're yielding to the truth of it. And in that, then, you know, there's a man, often a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and things like that. But see, I, I, don't, I, I don't do either of those things. And I'm still working on my language for this. But I'm, as of right now, I'm calling it uh, 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 communing uh, or communal intimacy. And it's basically where I don't have any mantra. I don't have any verse. I've got nothing. I just go out somewhere, shut up, and, and then just wait on the Lord with, again, and, and then let him take me where he wants to take me. And you do that a couple times, and he'll start taking you places. It gets wild. And so that's my, you know, meditation, contemplative, and then communal intimacy. Uh, have you used or found fasting to be beneficial in this experience? You know, I kind of already live a fasted life just for health reasons. So I've, I would say that fasting does have an impact for sure because I notice it just in the way I live. Um, but yeah, if you want to, like, say, do a two-day fast or something, um, and then... In, Combine that with some extra time with the Lord, just waiting on him. 
Um, I think it's very beneficial. I, I, I'm not religious about it. I mean, I'm not, there's no, uh, I wouldn't say do that all the time, no. But yeah, and let him lead you in that. Yeah. Absolutely. Just don't be religious about it. Fasting doesn't change God, it changes us. Yes? Can we do it anyway? The contemplative prayer for a little bit. Well, we can just take three minutes and do it. I mean, we don't, this is, okay, so we're going to, this is the, boy, this is the Reader's Digest bullet point version. Thing with, with think, I'm going to call it communal prayer. I'm going, to t- I'm going to do my way. If you, and believe me, there's so much out there on contemplative prayer, you know, Christian contemplative prayer, Christian meditation. So, you know, you can find that on Google. And so, but I'm going to give you my, what's, you know, changed my world. So it's really simple. <laughs> Just as much as possible, and it's, again, it's not ultimately a work of the flesh or, or emotions, but as much as possible, we want to, First, quiet our minds. We want to quiet our minds. And I will give you a little, a little hack, a little cheat, if you want. I, <laughs> and it completely contradicts what I just said, but especially if you're starting out in this, it actually, I find it works effectively. So, I do want you to actually think about one thing. Let everything else... Fall from your thought process, except this. You are a perfectly loved daughter or son of God. Just, I am perfectly loved. Now, I'm going to add to that. I want you to see yourself as the sole object of his affection. You are the only person on earth. You are the only person in the cosmos. You have his undivided attention, in every, which we already have, but I want you to double down on that, okay? I want you to think, I have, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit focused on me, right? Augustine said, God loves us as if there were only one of us. So just be one before him, okay? And I want you to just, just yield to this perfect love Coming from the Father, coming from Jesus, coming from the Holy Spirit, you're the only one alive. You have all their attention, and they're loving on you. So let's just take two minutes and yield to that and get in agreement with that. Okay, now in doing this, maybe you, you know, your thoughts wanted to wander. Maybe you're like, oh my gosh, did I leave the stove on? Or when does the football season start? It can be any crazy thought. But if you 
Bring yourself back to the perfect love of God. You are his perfectly loved child. After a while, all the peripheral kind of driven, you know, energy, kind of emotional energy-driven thoughts, they start to dissipate. And then after a while, what you do is once you've settled in, you don't even have to like consciously focus on being his perfectly loved child. Because what happens is you don't they're, 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 even that focus, that singular focus falls away. And you just know you are. It's just you know. And then you stay in that moment. And you yield to that. And you just stay there. And if you're like me, you're outside and you're just walking around. I'm a walker, you know, I got to walk. So I'm kind of pacing around somewhere, trying not to get hit by lightning. And I, you just get consumed in it. And then pretty soon you recognize that your life, yeah, you're in, you're, you have a distinct life. You're individual, you're, you're individually formed, specific, unique. And you keep all that, you keep that distinction. But somehow, even keeping that distinction, you're completely lost in this relationship that's going on between the Father and Jesus. You're, you're living their relationship. And I can give you two super quick examples of this. Two years ago, uh, I came out of a dance recital that my, my buddy's 12-year-old daughter was in. It's a Christian dance troupe in Farmington. And I was driving back to Durango. It was a Saturday afternoon. And I went into the spirit. And in the spirit, I was in this place where I was tangibly experiencing the real-time love going on between the Father and Jesus in the communion of the Holy Spirit, of course. I mean, I, was, I knew what it was. I, I'm, I'm driving. And I get home, I stayed in that place all Saturday, uh, late afternoon, all through the evening, fell asleep in that place, woke up in the morning, woke up right back in that place, and stayed there until about 5 o'clock in the, on Sunday afternoon. Just lost in my house, just totally tripping out on this love that's going on between the Father and Jesus. Just holy Hannah. It's like five in the evening. About three weeks later, two, uh, December 2021, I'd been up here, Joyland, Larry and Vicky, driving home, coming through Pagosa. I will never forget, I was going through Pagosa on 160, kind of looked, I was a beam, the McDonald's. And I went into the spirit. And this time... See, I believe that always going on between the Father and Jesus, it's, it's infinite, right? It's infinite. But I th- believe that three main things are there's a love, there's an honor, and there's a joy. That's just foundational to what's going on. There's a love, there's an honor, and a joy. And a few weeks earlier, I'd experienced the love, and this, that day I was experiencing the joy. Only, And I've known the joy of the Lord. I think we've all been pretty ripped in the joy of the Lord at one point or another. This was way beyond that. This was ecstasy. I mean, I've done some crazy drugs. This was light years beyond those drugs and light years better. It was this ecstatic state. I was in an ecstatic state. 
And, and I knew it was real time. This is what's going on all the time between the Father and the Lord. There is an ecstatic state of relational love. It's just off the rails. And I stayed, it's an hour drive from Pagosa to Durango, and I, and I, like, way in the back of the mind, I had this consciousness in the midst of this, I gotta go to Walmart and get some food and stuff. So I drove to Walmart and sat in the parking lot trying to, like, and I didn't want to leave the state, but I knew I couldn't walk into Walmart in this condition. So I sat in my vehicle for, like, another 45 minutes, and then he just started to lift off. He started to lift off. But it was wild, it was otherworldly, and even when he had lifted off to a degree and I went into Walmart, I was still completely, I mean, that was a weird place to be. Walmart is a very trippy place to be at times when you're in that kind of shape. But this is always going, you and I right now, last point, I swear, last point, you and I are always living in, we may not recognize the ecstatic state right now. Is anyone here in an ecstatic state? I'm not, but in Christ I am. Right now in Christ I am, and it's available. And anyone experiencing that perfect love between Jesus and the Father just manifesting in such a way you're, you're basically a puddle? You're, you're just, you can't even speak? No, but even though you're not manifesting it right now, you're in it. That's your highest truth. That's your reality right now. It's as real to you as the skin on your body and the clothes on your back. It's, it's as real as your righteousness. It's as real as your eternity with him. You are in a state of love with him, an ecstatic state, all these things. And it's, we don't have to obtain. There's nothing to obtain. It's just ours to discover. Brothers and sisters, we're already there. I, so that's that. That is that. Any other questions? I, you will talk later over at the food uh, table. Or, so thank you so much. And I really apologize for...